what when I was working my way into the town where you lived and worked and broadcast. I'd love to hear again right now the broadcast that made me say, hey, I've never been here before to live, but I'm home. I'm coming home. Well, <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'd like to hear it again, but, uh, you know, it's funny when you do the kind of personal work that I do and you do hear a show played back to you that you did some years before. It's like a curious sense of uh, uh, reliving a half-remembered dream. Have you ever, Barry, walked down the street or sat someplace or gone somewhere and you had this vague sensation, well, I, I, I've seen this before, I, oh, okay. I know. Okay, well, that's the feeling the I get. The French call it déjà vu, and I'm embittered that they don't have a better phrase for it in Yiddish, because they should. <laughs> well, we don't have any phrase at all for it, because I, I think Americans are not inward-looking people. I think uh, uh, one of the things that's been lacking in our writing, I'm talking about nationally, uh, is that our writings are not very introspective. Uh, they're often, uh, uh, the man does not excoriate himself much. He excoriates his victims, which are his characters, always the other guys. Uh, and the introspective writing, say, of a Proust or a, or a James Joyce is just not known to American and introspective people. Uh, they are, really, in their private moments, but they're often ashamed of it. You know, if you walked in on a guy in his office, and he's sitting there looking vacantly at the wall, and you say, what are you doing, Bob? He'd be ashamed to say, well, I was just thinking. <laughs> he would say, well, I was just uh, trying to remember about lunch. And the... <laughs> Did you, oh, wait, you know, I'm, I'm taking notes here, because I'm remembering the broadcast that you've done that have impressed me most. I don't have a chance to listen to you all the time, but every time I do listen to you, I feel so enlarged afterward, and I wonder how button-pushable you are. I am not too button-pushable. People point to me every day, hammy hands, intent frowns, and they say, I bet you don't remember me, and they win every time. Of course. <laughs> they, they were on my show three to five years before talking about something important, and they say, I bet you don't remember me, and they're right. That's terrible to admit it. I, I have trouble remembering my mother, but that's uh, another problem. Now, but I wonder if you remember the shows that I remember of yours. In other words, if I were to push buttons like, if I were to mention the one word, roll vog, would that Oh, sure. No, come well, absolutely. on. Absolutely, uh, Rovog, uh, uh, Giants in the Earth. And I can remember doing <laughs> doing that show you're talking about, about sometimes when you're a kid, you know, something, just a name or something would really get you. And, uh, and I remember seeing on a, I don't want to do the show again, but I do know the show very intimately. It was it, it, They gave us a reading list, and everybody else is picking out books like Sam the Young Shortstop, uh, you know, things like I don't know. And down way at the bottom of the list, it says Giants in the Earth. And it's, gee, fantastic. It's a great sounding name. And I went to the library and took Giants in the Earth out. And it was at that point that my life changed. Up to this point, you know, everybody in my neighborhood thought that, say, uh, reading the phone book was deep reading. And uh, getting the daily newspaper, and I'm starting to read Giants in the Earth and Rolvog. I remember it had two A's in it. <laughs> if I were to mention the one five-letter word, a name, Watts. Oh, yes, Hambone Watts. I remember. <laughs> now, that's another story. That's, that's, there's ever, you know, it's funny. You know, Woody Allen plays the little victim in all of his works. He's, he's always this little victim with the thick glasses, and there's this bad person that hits him, right? The bully. Well, I was the bully, see. And, uh, well, I was I was never the little victim. But Watts was this Weasley kid in our neighborhood that everybody victimized. He was, Watts was the kind of guy that just, you think of him as a human slug, you know, under a rock. And and, uh, and one day I got so mad at Watts <laughs> that I, you know, had a fantastic battle with him. Well, years went by, and the next day I know I'm in the Army. And, and a couple of couple of semesters go by, and I'm slogging, you know, I'm, I'm working my way slowly up to PFC. He's a dirty man, dirty ears. Oh, he was a miserable kid. He's just a rotten kid. He had, you know, I mean, he's, he's, I hate to say it, but, you know, there's nothing you could do for Watts. And and uh, one day, uh, I was in, 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 in this camp, and the CO had us all lined up, and he said... Uh, he said, we're going to have a big inspection, a battalion inspection today. And he said, well, you guys are really beyond the ball. And uh, he's really 
you know, right, right gung-ho. He said, well, I'm going to come through here. He said, I'm everything to be right. He said, I'm going to go over the, the, the barracks, the, the lockers with my white gloves. It's going to be, we're going to have a real inspection. The CO, the battalion CO is coming in. Well, we, you know, our inspections were all these little piddling inspections the first lieutenant came through, so everybody was really on top of it, and we worked like mad. <laughs> I remember the barracks door, we're all standing alert, and, and the captain stuck his head in it exactly, oh, 13, you know, 1300. He hollered, Ted, hut! And we snapped to it, and these people are moving down through the barracks, and led by the battalion commander, and I... I was standing there with my gut pulled in and my belt shined, and his face went by me. You don't see anybody when you're standing at attention, you know. And this guy looks right at me, saying, he says, oh, I said, so is you. He said, how do you like this camp? And I said, yes, sir, very good, sir. And it's Watts. Watts is a lieutenant colonel. <laughs> oh. At that point, I realized that the good guys don't always win, Mr. Breslin. Let me... Push another button. Was that the right button? Yeah, precisely. Precisely. You uh, scored two for two. <laughs> Let's see if you can score That's two a two show. I, I must have done that show. I don't think I've told that story again. That show was about probably 12, 13 years How ago. How do you remember? It's all there. You remember everything. It's not memory, Barry. Your life is in your inside of you. And the trick is learning how to, it's like Kodachrome slides. It's not a matter of memory. <laughs> All right, I want to give you one line from your writing that I sometimes laugh at when I'm with other people and they say, what's funny? And I say, well, something. <laughs> You're just thinking of a line? Of a line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to give you this line. I'll bet you don't get this one. All right. This is out of a book. Yeah. Okay. How do you know? Well, how do you well know? you said a line. I presume that you said that. It could have been out of a radio show. How do you know it was out of a book? I just, uh, I have six cents. Well, you're halfway yesterday already. No, I did. What do you mean halfway yesterday? It was out of one of your books. The line was this. Its name was Jack. Yes. Is that right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and, and nobody quite knew what it was. And, and there were rumors. <laughs> there were rumors around that it was some kind of bear. But then, <laughs> right, 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 right. hold your fire. Hold all I know is one day they found him eating the tires, the truck tires on Mr. Brewer's truck. <laughs> is that the, is that the hold your fire. Yeah. Uh, I will never win a Nobel Prize for literature. But if they start giving out prizes for understanding Gene Shepard, I'm going to have to put on a tuxedo and fly to Stockholm because I will thereupon win many. Gene Shepard's short stories in Playboy magazine, which I hope will be compendiumized and continue to proliferate across America. Every, that, that there was no simple story told because it was simple or amusing or convulsed people with laughter. Every one of Gene Shepard's stories had an allegory like the clenched fist of a hard hat, but not a hard, not a normal hard hat, a superhuman hard hat who could smite that <laughs> fist right through you if he wanted to. I remember the allegory and the story that contained the line, its name was Jack. When we convene, I want to see if Gene Shepard can the story and the allegory behind it. First, W.O.R. New York. I'm Barry Farber. I am sitting beside one of America's natural resources. I'm not humble because he's a good friend. He has put me at ease ever since I entered the broadcasting business. Matter of fact, he sucked me into the broadcasting business. I literally was homed in like an insect to a flickering light. Uh, Barry, do you remember the first time you interviewed me? Yeah. I, 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 remember, I certainly do. It was over in a ballroom in a hotel here in town, and uh, there was a, a big some kind of a high-level cocktail party going on, and there was an outfit there called, J uh, was it Jerry D and the Starlighters? <laughs> an early rock band? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> you don't remember? Yeah, I don't remember that. And, and Jules Pfeiffer came yeah, over. Yeah, Jules, yeah. Jules, Jules was an old friend of mine, you know. But, and at that time, I was doing a lot of stuff for the Village Voice, and Jules was over there. And uh, Jules comes over and he says, he says, who's that guy sitting over in the corner there talking to that thing? I says, why, well, it's Barry Farber. He said, Barry who? And I said, Barry Farber, you'll hear about him. <laughs> and Jules has, as you know. But uh, 
That was, I, I, I can't recall what the event was. Oh, yes. I remember. I remember. All right. I'll put you on test if you could tell me. I remember. I, know. I, I remember. remember. Oh, I remember. What, was it? what was it? It was an early Huntington Hartford magazine called Show. Or That's show right. Uh, Am I right? of the century. Yeah. Am I right? That's right. In yeah. fact, it's the only magazine I know that came with a fuse on it. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. It was a bomb of unbelievable proportions. How did that happen? Was that? That's correct. You convinced me with the theory of genius. In other words, I think genius flutters around the universe like lightning and it strikes certain people. I don't envy you for your genius. I think you happen to have had a higher antenna and attracted it and it struck you. Thank God it struck one of us. I think of the story of the Tasmanian devil, mm. uh, which people think was a story about a fight between two kids. Uh, it was an allegory about atomic warfare. It's correct. I remember Red Rider. As a matter of fact, you know, you know, Barry, when you ask about an allegory, it's funny, uh, again, as I say, we're not very introspective people, and, and very few writers in America write allegorically. Uh, I don't know how you get, you know, come to the kind of mind that you do, but I had an editor, and, and still do, a playboy one day. We were, uh, he uh, we were on the phone, and he said, you know, he said, I've heard you do things about uh, about war. And I said, well, I'm fascinated by war because I think war is, uh, is, a, is a curious expression of human or hu- uh, humanity. It's an expression of some kind. And uh, he says, well, I'd like you to write, how about a piece on war? On war, not the army, on war. And that is how the Tasmanian devil came out. It was a short story written about uh, two kids having a giant fist fight. Yeah. And as you know, neither one. Really. Right. And so many people who enjoyed the story of Red Rider's BB gun thought it was uh, an amusing story, very brilliantly written about a child who wanted uh, a certain gift for Christmas. A, a Red Rider Daisy BB gun. Yeah. In fact, uh, that's being made into a Warner Brothers movie now. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Oh, congratulations. And uh, we're going to work on that uh, beginning in October, because How fitting, because what it is is an Armageddon of the battle between not the sexes or the races, but the generations. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's ultimate. Uh, of course, it, it, like all of the, all battles, nobody wins. You see, it's assumed in the battle of generations, I think, that there's one generation that's right and one that isn't. Great illusion. <laughs> As a matter of fact, nobody's right and nobody's wrong. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a terrible realization to to come to uh, at a certain point in your life. But a lot of the, the ideas that you held were unbelievably fallacious. Even though you held them loudly and had buttons printed that you wore, <laughs> that's why I think a lot of people are, are very embarrassed about what's coming out about the Kennedy administration and that. It's uh, there's uh, many many things that people. People, uh, it's very difficult, you know, to admit that you were that you were one of the loudest of the yahoos in your day, and totally wrong. Uh, but then again, you're not really wrong. Uh, nobody's right, nobody's wrong. It's just that uh, things are not what they seem to be, especially if they can be reduced to a slogan. The story in which the line appeared, its name was Jack, may have come across to a Philistine as a story of Archie Bunker when slobs move in next door. Uh, it was not. It was an allegory for the oncoming riptides of barbarians. Exactly. Well, uh, it's the fear that all of us have. That story is... is I'm amazed, but you know, of all of... I don't, I don't like to, to uh, in a sense, uh, oh, sound like I'm... Uh, Complimenting you. No, do because I want to take it down. Oh, I'm wait, wait, I want to take it down in shorthand, print it, have you sign it, and get a job at Eastern State Teachers College well, one day teaching shepherdism. <laughs> Chef Essence. Chef Essence. That's going to be a whole course. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a mutual admiration society, but actually, Barry, uh, of the viewers who read the short stories, uh, and incidentally, they're much more understood. I, I've gotten a, a great reaction in Europe, mostly, to the short stories on the allegorical side. In America, they think their memories about boyhood. Yeah, I never are. I, none of these stories, by the way, are based on any of my own memories. Uh, none of them are, are based on any any uh, families. No, no, nothing fam- sacred. <laughs> that, that I've created a mythical family, like like uh, Faulkner created a mythical uh, county and, and uh, his Snopeses and Flemses and, and so on. 
nevertheless, uh, I, uh, I've, I've been fascinated by the fact that you, I don't know what there is in your background, you see the allegory. Uh, maybe you've been haunted by ghosts, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's for, you come from the South, there's a certain allegorical quality to Southern writing, you know, Barry uh, Faulkner and Carson McCullers. Very different from, say, Philip Roth. He, you wouldn't find an allegory in 10 million no. pages of Roth. I can't claim credit. I've just known Southern families who had, as you observed in reporting this particular family moving in beside you, 18 kids, 138 cousins, 54 dogs, all named old blue or red, 22 yeah. cats, and then... A, something looked like a ground weasel. And, ground weasel. and its name was Jack. <laughs> there was a big furry thing, and its name was Jack. <laughs> yeah, and the night that old Abel pulled the back porch off the house. Well, you see, and, and uh, my favorite... What was his name? Abel, Abel, Abel. Bruce, Abel Bumpus. And, and uh, the, the, to me, my favorite line, uh, it's funny, when you write something, you wind up with a favorite line of your own. And my favorite line is a, a brief snatch of overheard conversation when the bumpuses were yelling at each other from the basement or something, and, and Amo hollered, My God, she's back home from the reformatory. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> you remember the daughter came in and they never mentioned the reformatory again. But uh, I think that there's a secret inbuilt fear that all men have, and I don't care who they are. It could be related to xenophobia. I'm not sure. But it's the fear... Of the, in, of the barbarians. It's a secret inbuilt fear. Now, the barbarians, of course, are really, uh, in a sense, they're outrunners of the jungle. And and the inbuilt fear of the barbarians has nothing to do with color, it has nothing to do with race or religion. It's just the barbarian. If a guy of your own religion and your own race and your own color moved next door to you and you found out that he opened beer bottles by biting the tops of the bottles off, and and, uh, and and late at night, he, he stalked on the front porch and spit tobacco juice onto your Chevy. Uh, there would be a deep uh, fear that, uh, that that you're about to be attacked. <laughs> and that's what that story is based on. It's, it's the fear of slipping back into the mire of the jungle. See, I think we all came out of the jungle, Barry. And, and I, you know, originally, all Some the way more back, recently than others. Well, let's, you know, all the way back to the very earliest days of man. And we we all have a deep inbuilt racial, it's not even racial, let's say a, uh, a, uh, a species memory. The memory that the species has of slipping back into that night of the cave when uh, there was nothing between you and uh, the howling wilderness but a few trees that were falling, being hit by lightning. Uh, and I think that we, we, we sense it all around us now. I think we sense the slipping back into barbaric, uh, into the barbarism of the earlier days. And I think it's, it's, it's an inbuilt fear of going back to that that a lot of people feel. When we convene, I want to talk about a trip you made for me to the Stone Ages because I was afraid to go. Not because I was afraid of the Stone Ages, because I was afraid of the 20th century memes that were necessary to take one of them. That's ironical. You're afraid of the airplane, but not afraid of the of the poison darts. May I tell you something? May I tell you something? Uh, I was on a plane about to land in Cuba the day after Batista fled, and the plane circled and circled and circled, and on that plane were armed... I, I didn't know New York or America allowed this. It was a Cubana Airlines plane. History will... Like Castro said, history will absolve me. It's a true story. When Batista fled, Cubana Airlines was, of course, serving the United States. There was a Cubana office uh, in New York and Philadelphia and Detroit. Uh, Cubana served America. Mm-hmm. And the day Batista fled, the 26th of July movement, was, which was the Castro group, sure. took over Cubana Airlines. And the Americans... Contrary to Castro's pretensions and propaganda now, we loved him, we supported him. He was on the par show, you remember that? We hated Which was the ultimate accolade, I guess, most days. Batista was a dictator, and Fidel Castro was a Robin Hood, and we loved him, so we let him run his airline his way, and his way in those days, every single Cuban who hated Batista and loved Castro came out to the plane with his piano, uh, with his television set, with his whole family, uh, with his tuba, 
And with his machine gun, they were setting up machine guns in the aisles. Men were playing. Uh, yeah, men were playing with hand grenades like basketball. And we took off from New York City and went to Miami and landed, and then took off from Miami and circled, circled, circled at Rancho Boyeros Airport in Havana. And I said to them, "Why are we circling?" And a laconic Cuban Castro follower said, "The pilot is trying to see who controls the strip." And, 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 and I didn't care who controlled the strip. I would have gone down and gone to a Batista jail for 15 years just to have the pleasure of being on the ground. An occasion came up later where I was invited to visit the Stone Age Alka Indians of Ecuador. Alka. And I didn't because I didn't want to do that much flying unnecessarily. I fly to revolutions. I fly to wars. And I will always fly if I can do some good, and I will never fly merely for human interest or for recreation. I passed that trip over to Gene Shepard, and he took it. And I'm so tickled that you did. And it's not too late. Check your calendar. It's not too late to let you relive a few moments. From well, that. that was one of the most extraordinary uh, times in my life, that, uh, that brief period in the Amazon. It was, in fact, the upper reaches of the Amazon. Yeah. So this was in the headquarters. Peru. Yeah. When we reconvene, I want you to tell of your visit to the Stone Age, which should have been my visit, but I didn't want to go. <laughs> well, but we know the Stone Age would eventually come to us. If they had a train. <laughs> if only they had a train out of yarn. No. A train? Yeah. <laughs> First, if there you, you truly are a civilized man, you know. <laughs> why? Because I confess fear? No, you think in terms of a train to take you to uh, the Amazon Valley. I why not a train from... Daphne, South Carolina. That's a Victorian concept. Amarillo, Texas, down to Mexico City. The Victorians would do that. Panama, down to Colombia. A train takes you to the Boer War. Ecuador, right. right, uh And then over to Yerina Cocha, where we may have had to take an ox car. Oh, boy. I would not. Let me tell you about the the anacondas of Yerina Cocha. I'm glad you remember. That was 1965. How the heck do you forget sitting in the middle of a jungle with, with a guy standing guard for the Jaguars, you don't forget this overnight. Now, I may forget a lunch with Bob Alden, but I'm not going to forget that. Listen, <laughs> I will forget Jaguars, and I will forget Headhunters before I forget a lunch with Bob Alden. Well, honestly, I have had some memorable lunches with Bob, too. And uh, less listeners across the country think we're playing inside games. Bob mm-hmm. Alden is a hero of radio sales. Bob Alden has propelled the radio power to advertising agencies that thought television was the thing and Bob Alton with his own cunning and cunning. That's it. Slyness, cunning, yes. No. Cunning. <laughs> cunning is okay as long as there's competence attached. Bob Alton has brought those dollars from television back to radio and lived to get hugs and kisses and thank you notes from big deal advertisers who squandered their money endlessly on television. I don't know who's going to open up this. Learn how to invest it on... Wait, 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 you remind me of another story. Uh, you remind me of another story. Uh, I'm going to write it down right here. I hope we have time for it while we're together now. The story is uh, Matt, M-A-T, of foam rubber breasts. Please, there are children listening. <laughs> I hope so. It was a bath mat. Yeah. A bath mat of foam... Bath mat. Okay. It was, let's put it this way. It was definitely oriented towards the mammary gland. It was a it was a bath mat composed entirely of 36 unbelievably lifelike... Uh, uh, you were supposed to jump out of your bathtub and run over this thing at night. Look at the clock. Oh, I see. A break. i got to take a break here. Coming up, uh, memories of memories and Stone Ages and Headhunters, too. First, I'm Barry Farber and Gene Shepard. Incidentally, I wonder how many people like me have parked the car, taken tinfoil off the cheeseburger, tied it in like a bow knot at the top of the antenna, pulled the antenna up and angled it toward Mecca in hopes of getting the Gene Shepard show better when you were about a thousand or fifteen hundred miles away from Gene Shepard. Hey, I'll tell you the best story of all like that. Uh, <laughs> I got a fantastic letter one night, one day actually, from a woman who said she just had this terribly embarrassing thing happen to her. She said that she got so fantastically involved and in uh, listening to the show night after night, and she moved up into some place like Maine. And uh, she got way up there and couldn't get the show on her home radio, but she found out that she could get it on her car radio. 
and she'd drive out of town up to the top of a hill and park her car in the darkness and put up the antenna and sit and listen to the radio every night. And one night, she's up there with her antenna up, quietly sitting in the car, cackling away, all by herself. Her husband's back home in the shack asleep, and the kids are asleep. This is a secret vice. And suddenly, there's a flashlight in her in her window, and this face is glaring at her and says, all right, out of the car, put your hands on the roof, baby. And uh, she gets out of the car, and she said she was arrested right on the spot because they had been tracking her every night up to this hill, the police, suspecting that she was involved in some kind of a drug ring. And <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> and, and she was the wife of a, of a very respected school teacher in this town, and at that point, they took her back to town, and her husband had no idea she was doing this. He got up every morning and went to went to, went to school early, and he went to bed early, and she'd listen to me at 11 o'clock at night. She'd go out by herself to do this, and she was ashamed to tell him. So he gets he gets a phone call about 12.30 at night from the local Bastille. He says, are you actually married to this person named Gladys? And he says, yes, sir, Gladys. Just a minute, she's in the next room. Gladys? He says, no, there's a Gladys down here in the, in the slammer. And she says, she's your wife. And he says, great, Scott, what happened? He says, well, come on down and identify her. So he jumps out, puts on his pajamas, and drives into town. And there, sitting in a cell, was his wife, who had been arrested for listening to the Gene Shepherd show. <laughs> he says, what were you doing, Gladys? And she says, what did you do? I, I, I just don't know how to explain this. And the cop says, all right, bring her out. And so they bring Gladys out, and they stand her out in front of the sergeant, and the sergeant says to her, all right, baby, he says, tell that cockamamie story again. Tell it to this man who you say is your husband. I said, but I am her husband. And she says that in front of all the police, she had to admit that every night she went out secretly at 11.15 at night and drove up to the hill back in the woods in Maine, put up the car antenna, and listened to me. Nobody knew about it. And she said, well, I'm just so sorry. I didn't tell you about it before this, Fred. And Fred says, all right, come on, I'll pay her fine. And at that point, they let her go. And she, she was taken home in, in, in mental chains. And she wrote me this letter, and she says, ever since that time, she's very ashamed to listen to me. She said, I hope you're still on. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, think, I, think, I think nighttime radio, Barry, has a curious indescribable hold on people. Uh, in fact, I can remember when I was going to Indiana University, and I used to drive uh, late at night on US 41. I used to date a girl who was in Chicago. Can you imagine every other night driving 300 miles north and then 300 miles back to date this girl who in the end gave me the business? So <laughs> I'm driving late at night, and I got to the point where I'm always listening to WHAS in Louisville. And there was a guy who came on late at night on WHAS, and he had this very sinister, cool attitude towards things, and just talking away, and he used to do a, a pipe tobacco, for pipe smoking. He made pipe tobacco, Barry, sound like hashish. <laughs> you know, he would talk away there. And you know who it is? It's Jim Lounsbury. You ever hear of Jim? Jim, Jim uh, you know, does... Uh, He's, I think he does news and INS and things like that now. But uh, it had a curious magnetic pull. And, the, and the, the most interesting story about people trying to hear you, uh, I got a, a letter and a tape within the past six months from it, who, when he went, he's from America, and when he went to Italy to study medicine, uh, he's doing some kind of special work over there, he put a very involved antenna on the top of the place where he lives in town. And he, every day, tunes in, believe it or not, to the New York station here and hears us direct and I tapes it. I don't believe Absolutely. It. And I have a tape of it. He says, you want to hear how you sound in Trieste, Italy? And I've got the tape. It's incredible. And you can hear Luxembourg uh, sneaking in on us. And, uh, but this is, uh, this is something that... I don't think many people know about radio. They don't know the, the, the long-distance effect of it. I used to be on a radio station, Barry, that had a radio uh, a, a, a call break. In other words, our station break was the only station heard 
regularly on Guadalcanal. Oh, come on. It's a fact. And I want to tell you, if any of the listeners are out there, uh, I'll award a brass figure with a bronze oak leaf palm if they can identify that station. That was the station break they used. Fantastic coverage on the station. I'm annoyed by major stories that nobody has ever heard of. When the Russians were very thick with Cuba, the Russians have left Cuba now. There are not many Russians there. They've left their fingerprints, but there were a lot of Russians in Cuba back in the early 60s. The State Department asked WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, which has a signal that blankets Havana. You can hear WBT of Charlotte, North Carolina, like a local station in Havana. Somebody in our government, maybe it was the CIA, I couldn't care less. If it did, I support it. I think it was a brilliant move, whoever brought this about. They arranged for WBT, Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, mind you now, that's the anchor of the Piedmont. Yeah, I know where it is. Very rough, big station. Yeah. They uh, arranged for WBT to broadcast the 11 p.m. news in Russian for the Russians stationed in Cuba. And they did. Year after year. You must have confused them down there in the well, south. <laughs> I, always wanted, I always wanted to interview some farmer from Yadkinville, or, uh, you know, or Asheville, or Sherrod. Did you just see this guy, Tony? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah says, exactly. Says, My God, this beer is getting awful strong. I can't understand it. What are you saying? From the northern announcers. Well, I need this jockey is not a town for crying out loud. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when we reconvene, we'll get to what I intended to get to in this stanza. I do want vicariously to take a trip that I should have taken. Matter of fact, now that you came back safely, I wish I had gone to the headhunters of Ecuador. I remember when you came back from the Alcas, I heard your broadcast driving up from the southern part of the United States to where you were broadcasting from. And all I remember is almost driving off the road with laughter at one line, which I will repeat uh, in the upcoming stanza. First, W-O-R, New York. Uncle Ties, Hunan Yuan. Now, the Hunan Yuan, uh, Hunan is the name of the province. Yuan uh, means garden. Uh, I don't want to teach too much Chinese in this one-minute commercial. I wouldn't try, I'd but I'd rather limit it to Uncle Tai. Uncle Tai is a pioneer of the Hunan cuisine. You don't have to take my word for it. The New York Times food columnist gave Uncle Tai four stars. How many of them have you seen in the New York Times in the past? Yeah, they give yourselves more than two. <laughs> and I don't say food either, except on the, on the top floor. Yeah, hamburger now and again. But. Uncle Tai's not only got the four-star rating from the New York Times, Holiday Magazine gave Uncle Ty's a 1975 award. Judson, too, 2000. Barry, you would have made a fantastic hellfire and brimstone preacher. But I'm Jewish. I mean, I mean there was just no room. There was no uh, room. preacher has no, uh, has no religion. He's a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have preachers in India? I never saw a Jewish evangelist. Was a Barry, Barry, one of the great scarifying moments in my life came one time when me and Schwartz and Bruner went in. No, was there really a, I, I hate to add. No, let me I made up my story. mind I would never add. I'm not going to add. I hope. Let me just tell the listeners, I hope there was a Schwartz. Even more than I hope that there was a watch. Barry, mm -hmm. is, there, is there a Santa Claus? Resoundingly. All right. So, <laughs> I, I was up for beautiful answer. This is not me, Barry. Uh, a moment ago, you mentioned blue crabs. And I'll never forget a terrible problem once that Company K had, uh, a company in the Army that I was in, with those very creatures. Uh, I, I don't like to, you know, carry on about this as a medical problem, but it caused a lot of excitement. And I was very interested to find it popping up in a commercial here. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, Barry, uh, you asked me about preachers. I'll never forget. You know, I think you have been, you know, you come from the South, and you, you've heard these resounding... Uh, these resounding voices talking about sin and evil all oh, day, singing and dinner on the ground. Absolutely, yeah. see, and, and and sin and 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 evil and good are always battling it out. In New York, we never mention it; we just assume we're good, you know. So, the evil is something the other states and the other towns do, but we're good. So, down there, it's always in doubt. And uh, as you know, Barry, that that there are these great voices that are continually talking about it. And so, one hot night. It was about 105 degrees, and, you know, the fireflies are popping, and you could smell the snowball bushes, you know, that kind of night, and the heat is laying down. 
and me and Schwartz and Flick, and you know, we're walking down the street, and, and down at the down at the end of the street, in a vacant lot, about two weeks before, they had set up this this shack, this great, it was like a hangar, and it was made out of it was made out of corrugated tin, you know, that kind of wavy tin. They ventured as far north as Indiana. Oh, Barry, Indiana makes Barry makes makes Billy Graham look like a very uh, a very a very not Hamlin. That's up north. You, you, you don't know anything about Indiana, Barry. That they that on this hot night, I'll never forget it. Schwartz and I and Flick were walking down the street, saying, and you could hear this noise coming, and there's music, and people, you know, big big excitement going on down there, and people are going in. So we, you know, you're, you're a kid, you go down to see what's happening. So we walk down past, and all these people are going in. You see yellow light bulbs hanging from the ceiling. They had all these wooden benches in there. And uh, this guy out in front, see, he says, come on in, boys. He says, it's free. Well, you know, so Schwartz and Flick and I walk in there, not realizing we're going to about to have the greatest experience of our lives. So we walk in, we sit down among all these people. There must have been a thousand of them in there. And there was a piano at each side of the stage. And it was free. So it was a show. And all of a sudden, the lights went down, and somebody started to play at each piano. You know, bah, 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 bah. And I leaned forward. And suddenly, right in the middle of the stage, came on this spotlight. And right in the middle of the stage is Elmer the barber. Elmer was the local barber. And he had stopped being a barber about a year ago and had disappeared from town. Now he came back and he was a hellfire evangelist. And Elmer had this red face and he's standing right in the middle and he's of the, of the stage and he's wearing a fireman's helmet. And he says, everywhere I look, tonight I see the fires of hell and tonight I'm going to put out them fires. I am a fireman fighting brimstone. And he runs across the stage. And we're watching, and he has a, a, a fire hose, which he unreels, <laughs> and, and he, he, the fire hose squirts his water down under the floor, and everybody jumps back. And at that point, he walks to the front of the stage, the lights come up, and he says, I see it everywhere tonight, everywhere I look, I see evil, and I want all of you to look deep inside of your souls and see where you have sinned. Schwartz looks at me, and he says, what did I do? <laughs> I said, I don't know, Schwartz. I can feel something. He says, I want you who have sinned to come forward. Come forward and cleanse yourself. And with that, people started to go forward like they were mesmerized. And right there in the middle of them all was me and Schwartz and Flick. Confessing our sins. Schwartz was eight, I was nine, and Flick was pushing ten. We are down on our knees with the sweat rolling down. And he says, I see sin. And he points right at me. He says, you're one of the worst. And I'm looking up. And I knew I was. Well, <laughs> they started to sing. And the next thing I know, everybody's marching out singing. And that night, Flick and I were out in the darkness now with Schwartz. We didn't know what to say. We don't say anything at all to each other. It's been a fantastic experience. And I go home. And my mother says, did you go to the show? I said, yeah. She says, what did you see? So, nothing. Just a picture. W.O.R. New York. She said, you didn't go to the movies. She says, something funny about you. What's the matter with you? How could I tell her that I was a reformed sinner? It's not easy when you're nine to tell that to your mother. I'm a reformed sinner. She's not sin. <laughs> Since that time, I've been conscious that within me there lurks a small, sort of green devil that is willing at any time to be summoned forth to confess. Did you feel that same fire when you were with the non-glandular evangelists uh, who headquarter in the Arena Cocha, which is a backwater town in Peru, when you went down as my 
uh, substitute because I was afraid to fly. Well, that's a different yeah. kind of evangelist. Those people are really evangelists in the sense of the hellfire brimstone. They're business-like missionaries, and I love them. Yeah. I have never seen any religious commitment as in, well, I, I've learned about Masada, of course, which means a great deal to me personally. But I don't think I ever had a chance to tell you this, the antecedent story of the people who welcomed you. Well, sure, I know the story. I was involved. 1956? Well, I do know about the group. And, and But what fascinates me was not the whole, uh, you know, the whole mission the culture and all that missionary culture which exists down there. What fascinated me, though, was, was the jungle, uh, the, the, the river, uh, the heat. You know, I don't think people who who live in, in the civilized world that we live in, and even people who think they're wilderness types. You know, I, the other day I ran into a guy in the newsroom, one of the newsmen, he says, man, he says, I'm, I'm really into the wilderness bag. I know. I mean, wilderness bag means going on a canoe on the Delaware. Yeah. But uh, I think most people who have never really done any traveling in the world, and most people, again, think traveling is taking that trip to Paris and the side stop off of Amsterdam, but I'm talking about traveling. Uh, have no concept of what the wilderness is like. I, when, and this is what got me, Barry. Well, that wilderness began for you when I went to a hotel in Midtown Manhattan for a luncheon sponsored by Luden's Candy. Now, Luden's means cough drops to most people, but Luden's wants us to know that Luden's has a wide rainbow of other confections other than cough drops. Hey, you better point out, this is not a commercial, you're just stating a fact. That's true. That's history. Yeah. Ludens uh, had the press to a luncheon. It was a candy show in New York City. And they gave every member of the press a little ticket. And all the candy that was being displayed was going to be given to any broadcaster there who had the winning ticket. And I won it all. I won all the candy from the Luden's exhibit, which Luden promised to deliver to the favorite charity of the broadcaster who won. Well, at that time, I had just come from an interview with Tariri, who you met. Yeah, Tariri. Tariri was the chief. That's right. Tariri. Killed 45 people. And had their heads. You he better believe it. I was in the camp where they were. He was a headhunter before he <laughs> converted to Christianity. And Tariri had just come back. But out. they keep backsliding. <laughs> well, I don't they know. They do, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, you, know, we, you hear only one side of the story. Well, no, nobody's perfect. But let me tell you. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> it was pretty good at it. <laughs> but anyhow, I had just interviewed Tariri through an interpreter from the Bible Institute, and I couldn't believe it. And I've heard interpreters at the U.N. This was not the U.N. He was a jungle headhunter with 45 heads under his belt. He didn't have those heads under his belt when he walked into the studio, but he had them back home uh, in Ecuador, in the jungles. Well, it wasn't Ecuador, actually. It's Peru. And what's the difference when you get out in that... I mean, uh, uh, have you ever looked at... Wait a minute. Have you ever... Wait, wait, wait. Now, now behave. Yeah. Have you ever looked at a Peruvian map of Ecuador and then at an Ecuadorian map of Peru? Those countries overlap by two-thirds uh, each That's one. That's true, especially in that, uh, that, what they call the Montaña. Precisely, precisely. So I was overcome with Tariri and his testimony, his commitment to Christianity, and I said, I want this candy to go to the Alca Indians uh, recently reached by missionaries from uh, the Evangelical Society. I want this candy to go to them. And Newton thought it was a great, uh, designation and destination and they said will you go down and take the candy and I said no I don't like flying but uh, I have a friend who does let's see if Gene will go and you were available and you went well I had some experiences in that trip Barry that uh, I don't think you I've never told you uh, no but you told the listeners and no no a lot of things that happened you know that you you know when you're when you're involved in a viscerol experience like that uh, what you can do on the air about a thing that is is, is uh, I, I, I think that more than any experience in my life I think that changed me because you know uh, none of the religious aspect changed me you mean I, I put a fingerprint on your consciousness oh very much I so helped but you see I don't I, uh, very much so but uh, I don't think that uh, that even now it's, it's hard to explain to people I know very few people very few I mean if you were to take uh, a billion people off the, uh, off the face of the globe and, and ask 
uh, find out how many of those billion people have ever actually been in a part of the world that is not even mapped. And as a matter of fact, uh, is with people who, uh, in some cases, had never seen a, a person from the outside world ever. Uh, it's a frightening experience in some ways because uh, everywhere you go down there, Barry, I'll tell you one thing before we go off, uh, before you have to do a commercial or something, but I want to say one thing about it while this train is in my, in my head. Uh, on every side in, in, a, in a jungle like that, in that part of the world, Stone Age, well, it's not just the people, remember. See, I think you, like many city people, are not oriented, really, to the, to, to the, to the true lethal quality of nature. That around you, down there, at all times, invisibly and otherwise, is death in many forms. I mean, as a matter of fact, Barry, uh, they have uh, they have tropical insects and diseases. Well, I'll give you one example of that. There's a tiny frog that lives in that area, only in that area, that is is no bigger than oh, possibly a quarter, roughly a twenty-five cent piece. It's a gorgeous little creature. It's blood red, beautiful, except that it's among the most deadly creatures in the face of the globe. Believe me, I don't want you laughing about it. No, I'm funny about it. I just never heard this. Well, it's our thing. See, so that, so that if you, in fact, it's it's one of the few animals that has uh, a contact poison. It doesn't bite or anything. That if you touch it, it, it exudes a poison that kills you in maybe 10 or 15 seconds. Do they know it? Do the Stone Age people down there know to stay away from that problem? Of course. When we convene, I want you to take us back to the land of that 25-cent piece-sized red frog. First, Rick, before you go on, can I ask you a question yeah, about that? Yeah. Can you tell me the name of a great American novelist from your home state who wrote a beautiful novella with the title with the term Brooklyn in its title? Oh, Henry. No, was O. Henry from your home state? Yeah, yeah. So what Wolf? did he write about Brooklyn? Uh, Thomas Wolfe. Thomas Wolfe is what I'm thinking of. Only the dead know Brooklyn. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad I And had where that. did he live in Brooklyn? Right. That would be great for Lou Singer to put that on his tour. I wish he would. I wish he would. I don't know. Do you? Yes, I wait, do. Wait, well, wait. Uh, we'll talk about it. To be continued. When Gene Shipper reported on his trip to the Alka Indian headhunter, a Stone Age savage country in either Ecuador or Peru. Well, actually, Barry, can I explain something? That it wasn't specifically the Alka Indians. See, that is a generic uh, name for a whole, almost a whole satellite of, of uh, tribes, and they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, I specifically was involved with the tribe called the Shapa tribe, which is a far outrigger tribe of the Auka general classification. Uh, the Hivaros are part of that uh, general uh, classification of tribes. But the, this particular tribe had only about... Of course, when we think of a tribe, we think of the American tribal Indian, which is not at all analogous to their tribes. Uh, the, the American tribal Indian really was a, was a unit that lived pretty much in its own together. But the tribes in, in, uh, in the Montagna section may not even know other members of their tribe, and the entire tribe may just number, say, in the case of the shoppers, uh, roughly 1,800 people. But they were spread out over thousands of miles. They didn't live together. Uh, the, the, the biggest unit would be a family unit of about 16, about two males. And you went down They were there. polygamous, by the way. Really? Very. They had dogs. I remember mean, you told us that. Oh, well, wait a minute. Now, that's nothing to do with their marriage. <laughs> Although I don't know some of their... But uh, this uh, this was... Uh, they were polygamous and, and, uh, and uh, very... Uh, unpredictable. See, what you saw up here was not what was down there. See, I felt, too, that, uh, that the ability to describe or to experience something which is almost implacable, you can't do it. That's why I rarely talk about this experience. The people who have known me for years, I never talk about those days down there, because uh, I, I came away with a profound, curious fear of man out of there because man basically I, I realized in my experiences down there man basically is a, is a true dangerous carnivorous animal 
in any philosophy which you absorb is only a very uh, surface thing. It would be like taking a tiger. You know, I once talked to the great late Clyde Beatty, and Beatty said there's no such thing as a, as a tame tiger. He says a tiger can be taught certain responsive tricks, but he's always a tiger, and given the proper circumstances, is as ferocious and deadly as any tiger that's in the Burmese jungle. He says there's no such thing as a tame tiger. And I say there's no such thing as a civilized man. There are only people who are like us living in uh, Western civilization uh, who run into certain few responses. And we, In other words, right below the surface lies a dangerous carnivore. I mean, the most dangerous. Because most carnivores, you see, uh, don't practice their carnivoral practices on one another, really. That is, on, within their own group. Uh, but man does. And so do the lions, man. Is it true that the Rubens candy that we meant to uplift <laughs> and rotted, stuff. rotted their teeth out? Oh, no, they couldn't understand it. They, uh, we, uh, all of a sudden, here, here we were, and, and uh, I felt, uh, uh, let's put it this way, uh, if you could have a profound religious experience, which I've never had in my life, I had a profound, silly experience. To, to stand in the middle of the Montagna jungle, surrounded by thousands of miles of trackless wastes, and to realize that I've come to give the Shopper tribe uh, T-shirts to say Luden's on it. <laughs> I mean, it was something that, that makes Catch-22 read like the Reader's Digest. You said on the air they'd never even heard of Barbara Streisand. Well, they hadn't even heard of the Earth. As a matter of fact, oh, no, Barbara Streisand. In fact, I, 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 of course, the one thing that hit them about me at the time, if you recall, I had a magnificent beard. And and there was a stunned moment when, when, when I got out of the... See, we landed on the river. Anybody who's listening to this wonders, well, how did you get there? Well, uh, we flew in in a, in a, in a plane. Oh, Larry, this would really frighten you, Barry, because if you're not a flyer, you would not appreciate this, but... Uh, this truly trackless jungle. There's no conceivable way that a man can go through this. It's, it's swamp, it's... Uh, 200-foot trees, all packed. In fact, at, when you're a 1,000 feet above this jungle, it looks like one enormous, totally impenetrable green nylon carpet. There is nothing. Now, off in the distance, you see these great rising Andes and great thunderstorms go rolling over. It's really magnificent, scary country. Well, as we flew in from uh, the Pucalpo River, which is... Uh, the last outpost of civilization. Peter Matheson, by the way, wrote a great novel about that town, uh, which was there, the Ukiali River, excuse me, the name of the town is Pukalpo. It's a tiny frontier, uh, undes indescribably filthy, frightening town on the Ukiali River with, with the entire surroundings covered all the houses by the way which are little lean tos and shacks are covered with giant vultures just sitting there waiting for something to die in the mud streets and they it's just 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 uh, indescribable well as we flew in from that river from that town on the river in a in a plane called a, a helio courier which is a special type of light plane made for stole operations landing on rivers you see and a float plane, and we flew in on this light plane over over roughly 1,200 miles of trackless jungle, stopping at on the, on rivers as we flew, and we jump into the woods and bring out a, a 50 gallon drum of gasoline, which they stashed in there, the pilots, and we pour it in and fly further. Anyway, get and we're finally getting into there and realizing that no one had been in this area, you know, no 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 uh, white men had been in this area for roughly two years. Uh, and the pilot, as we're flying in, who was a 15-year uh, veteran uh, jungle pilot, that's a very special type of pilot, he said, you know, he says, Don't, no matter what anybody's told you back at the base, he says, no one knows what you're going to find the minute you land. He says, it can change overnight. 
one minute you're there and everybody's showering you with gifts, the next minute you're there and your head is drying in the sun. <laughs> he, he says, don't let anybody kid you, buddy. So we all had it. He says, and so I jumped out of the plane. I was in the in the right-hand seat, see, and, and spelling him a bit at the controls at the time. See, so when we when we got in, in the area and we landed on this narrow, rushing, fantastically uh, turbulent river, Really an exciting landing. We came down right between the trees, and, and, and he flew along with the curve of the river and laid one float down first, and we just, just barely got in. We, we floated into the, to a sandbar, dead silence around us. He says, quick, you know, the plane is being carried down river, so he says, jump out on the float, and he says, and hop on that sandbar fast. So I did with a rope, and I pulled the plane in. By the way, the, the water was filled with piranha. And electric eels and other goodies that you don't find in Central Park. And I, I pulled the plane up to the shore, I say, and at, at that moment I noticed that the, the, the pilot, the plane, he looked up and there was a steep bank. And I, uh, he, he was looking up, sort of a funny look on his face. And I looked back up and here were these three uh, headhunters behind me with blowguns just looking down at me. Absolutely no expression on their faces. You didn't know which way they were going to go. They were the nice ones. You never knew. <laughs> they just looked. And and, and they, they, they couldn't believe. Though. You could see there was a curious confab went on, and they came charging down the bank. And the first one came over and grabbed my beard. <laughs> they pulled it. <laughs> and and at that point, the, the pilot says, don't laugh, don't do anything. He said, I'm not kidding. And we stood there for a minute. He's pulling his beard. They had never seen a beard. Indians have no beards. And uh, missionaries have no beards either, as you know. They, <laughs> they have these cool cuts and these clean looks. And here was decadent shepherd from the village with his shades and a beard. I was another kind of human being. <laughs> and, and, and you know that, the, that, that this particular group has a word, uh, a shopper word, which... Uh, see, the word shopper means human being in their language. Uh, they define human beings as themselves. Mm -hmm. All other creatures are animals. Mm -hmm. So they don't feel any compunction about killing you any more than you may feel compunction about running over a squirrel or hitting a, hitting a you know, you may feel a moment, uh, gee, it's too bad, but it's not like hitting your Aunt Clara. Uh, so <laughs> they... they Immediately they began to talk among themselves, you see, and, and this this pilot had only he had a few words in this language. He, he uh, very rare language. It took him 15 years to crack the language. It had no known antecedent. It was connected with nothing except maybe uh, penguin language or something. It sounded like Russian, by the way. I have it on tape. And and he says he says he says they think you're a monkey. Oh come on! I'm not kidding you. The beard, uh, the face with the beard convinced them that I was the biggest monkey they'd ever seen and, and more than that I was a monkey that talked they couldn't conceive of this so that's that's how this fantastic scene began uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't go well, I'll tell you one other little story that I ever told on the air well, immediately they turned around and there was a kind of a movement and the movement really was to be interpreted as come with us now so we ran, we ran through the jungle. It was just before twilight. See, they, they live way, well off the stream. They never live on the stream because the enemies come up the stream. When there's raiding parties between one groups of, of, uh, of these, uh, these tribesmen and another, uh, they come by river. It's the only way to travel. You don't possibly do it. And uh, so they live off the river, and, and they maintain a constant lookout in this tiny little clearing. Uh, with a with this lean to which they build, they they live in, and they keep a constant fire. And the first thing that happened when we got back there, I'll never forget as long as I live. And do you want me to tell it now, or I'll hold hold your okay. fire, hold your fire. This, however, makes me prefer the wilds of central Norway, uh, where the worst thing that happens is the Narvesen kiosk newsstand has run out of 
that day's issue of the Paris Herald Tribune uh, and the bus uh, back to Muirana uh, doesn't go on national holidays and you have to stay at the little inn until the next day. That's my kind of wildness, a little bit remote from Gene Shepard's kind. Uh, we'll let both kinds confluence while we're together. I'm Barry Farber and I know a woman not lucky enough to live in Trieste where you can get Gene Shepard but she lives in a dead pocket in the Smoky Mountains uh, between North Carolina and Tennessee. I'm not even sure she knows which state she's in right now, but they can't get any radio from the outside. Really? Yeah. She has heard Jean Shepard four times on trips to Europe to visit her son in the Army in London. And every four times that she's heard Jean Shepard, he's been singing. And she thinks Jean Shepard is a singer on the radio. Yeah. Well, I am. Well, you've heard about the story of the eight blind men. I am. Man, but when I'm singing, I do sing that here. And she said, oh, I love the way he does Rose of Washington Square. And, and I can understand her feeling because the first couple of times I listened to Gene Shepard, too, he was singing a very significant song. You can get letters when there ain't any mail. You can get partridge when there ain't any quail. You can get ice cubes when there ain't any hail. Habeas corpus when there ain't any bail. Uh, Gene Shepard brings back songs that other people don't even have the courage to admit that they remember. Gene Shepard enriches the air over America, not just verbally, but in print. I don't think there is any virtuoso of the English language who is as armor-piercing in both the spoken word and the written word as my partner for the broadcast right now. And he's courageous, too. He's more courageous than I am. I wouldn't go down to the Alka Indians. I said, I won their candy. I'll send it with Gene. <laughs> Gene Shepard took a load of candy down. Well, I wasn't. You know, we, we make this sound like it was some kind of a promo trip taking candy. It was not. That was just a, a, a very small. No, you were, you, no I, I agree. But you know. the, you know, the Luton's company gave me the candy. I said, I wanted it. was to your idea down. to send it down there. Yeah. And, and uh, and it wasn't Luton's attempting to to no not away not no way. let's absolve Luton's but the Evangelical Society and at that time Dr. Everett Grafton was in mm -hmm. charge of the Evangelical Society well they they you see the thing that was interesting that we took a lot more than that in there too I, I guess we have to explain something about that that uh, uh, this was not a, a, a missionary trip anything like that it was more of a of a curious uh, adventure is what it really was, and, and among other things that we took into those people because it's a, it's a it's a tough, rare trip, and they don't make that trip down there often. In fact, when we get back to Lima, and the Lima press, uh, the the uh, people who are in uh, in the newspapers and the radio down there and television. Uh, we're all there to talk to us because uh, this is a very rare place for an outsider to go and a dangerous place. Well, for an insider to go, I bet well, they never been there. Of course, of course not. not. And they yeah. said we were crazy. They, they, their attitude was, that we, you know, because well, no, really. It's it, it, and now looking back on it, Barry, I question whether I would have ever done it because now I didn't until after I had done it. I didn't realize how dangerous it was. Uh, I'm talking about physically. I'm not to, uh, talking about the, the natives or anything in the area there. Uh, I'm talking about physically. Uh, there were so many lethal diseases, for example, that you could get down there in that area specifically that they had no, not, not, not much medical knowledge about it. I would not let anybody walk off the beaches of Dunkirk for the rest of my life and say, hey, that was nice. Nice surf, nice sand, nice hot dogs up there. It's a little concession. Uh, if he didn't understand what the beaches of Dunkirk meant to our lifetime, uh, I would impose, intrude, and tell him. I know that you know the following story, but people listening who think this is just a merry jaunt to the jungle must hear right now, even if it's superimposition, the story of what made this part of the world significant. In 1956, and I dare anybody to show me from modern times a more powerful story of religious commitment, there were five Christian missionaries in a small plane trying to reach the Alka Indian headhunters. They softened up the area, not with carpet bombing, but with loudspeakers. They had a missionary uh, who worked with them who knew the language because one of their girls was kidnapped by a white trader a few years earlier and grew up with them and spoke both Spanish and the Alka language and she taught the Alka language to the missionaries and they preached in the language with loudspeakers. Well, that's the famous story. 
Lewis, in fact, the world story. Famous to you, but I'll bet you're not. 1% 1% of the listeners know it, and I want to repeat it as quickly as I can. They dropped gifts to the Alcas, and five missionaries landed in a seaplane on that same river. True. Armed, fully armed against animals. Their advance work had not worked. They came not as friends, but they came as headhunters. And the missionaries on the plane saw that the Indians, the Alcas, came to kill them. Now, yes, that's true. They were Christian missionaries. I talked to a lot of people in the area who knew about it, yeah. They were Christian missionaries. We know because they took careful notes until the moment they were slaughtered. The Indians came and they said, too bad, our preliminary uh, overtures did not work. They don't understand why we're here. They don't want us here. They don't like us. They are not to, let's point out, too, that these people were not going to convert the Indians. A lot of people don't think that this is true. Uh, they were largely medical missionaries. Precisely, yeah, yeah. The Indians came to kill the men in the airplane who still had a few minutes left to write their last testament. They were fully armed. The Indians weren't armed. They said we could shoot and kill them, but if we did, they would go to hell. We are going to let them kill us and not fire our guns we will go to heaven and they can still be saved. And all five missionaries from the Evangelical Society were slaughtered in their seaplane on that sandbar. The wives of the missionaries, including Rachel Saint, yeah, who you must yeah, remember, I remember yeah. the wives and their children, we, they did not come back to the United States in grief. They stayed, they swallowed their tears, they tried to follow their husband's footsteps, and this time they made it. This time, who knows what it was? A smile. Well, they, the theory is that it was because it was women. See, uh, see yeah. women, women are not considered human beings either. <laughs> uh, to these Indians, did you know that? No, they're, they're considered a, a curious sort of separate species. You know, this has been persisting in uh, mantle. It goes back to Plato. Uh, the idea of women as a different species, and uh, they didn't think of them as dangerous in the same way that they thought of the male missionaries. That's maybe the key. But when the women and their children went back, the Alcas accepted them, and they managed to reach the Alcas to Christianize them, and the five headhunters, I mean, could the Reader's Digest write it better even if the Reader's Digest were fiction? The five headhunters who killed the missionaries in the plane became not just converted to Christianity, but they became Christian missionaries themselves who thereupon went on a mission of their own to try to Christianize the Downriver Alcas, and I met one of them, which triggered your trip. Tariri was one of the yeah, slaughterers of the missionaries. So you know, he was very different. Missionary. May I say this? He was very different in the jungle where I was than, than he was here. Uh, <laughs> It's it's fascinating. I, I, see, I I am I'm not I'm a. You remember Tariri? Of course, he he. Uh, he was spent, chief. I yeah. spent much time with him. He he gave me a paddle that he had carved, which was a very important symbolic thing for them down there. But I can tell you that I have. This is six of one, half a dozen the other. Barry, you know, it's it sounds very simple, and you say, well, now they're all this, but that's not the way it really is in the jungle. That. This is a thing which is very illusory, and the people who are right in there will tell you that. The people who are out here, possibly, in the offices and in the various uh, organizations that are running the organization, it's not the same. It's like it's like if you're a frontline soldier, you can never explain it to right. some guy right. that's back at the Pentagon. Uh, and this is the way it is right. in this world. Right, but I hold to the important outlines of the story. Yeah, the, 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 the five missionaries were killed. Their wives and children went back to do their job. They were accepted, and the five... Well, not accepted. Not, let's put it this way. They weren't destroyed. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. But the five missionaries... difference. But the five headhunters who killed their husbands are now missionaries. You see, we... I, don't I met Tariri. He told me he was I see, but, but I must understand. I must understand something. That we 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 tend to think of this. See, this area down there has no relationship to say, uh, you know, people who may have an empathy with uh, with various African tribes. And so this has nothing to do with this. Excuse me. Hold your fire right now, because you understand what promiscuous waving from the control right. room means. Uh, we'll be right back. First. 